Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Samuel Ramani. He's an on-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum and a doctoral candidate in international relations at the University of Oxford. He contributes regularly to Foreign Policy magazine and is a commentator for Al Jazeera on Middle East affairs. Our conversation today focuses on the United Arab Emirates, a rising power with large regional ambitions, but one that's facing ever closer scrutiny. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to be on this podcast today. Um, now, look, the, the UAE has lived what I think we would call a bit of a charmed life when it comes to negative publicity. I mean, it was actively involved in the Yemen war, is very heavily engaged, backing the Libyan warlord Khalifa Haftar, has serious human rights abuses, and yet to escape the kind of negative publicity that Saudi Arabia's experienced until last week, with the story of the Dubai Crown Prince's daughter, Princess Latifa, being held in captivity by her father, Sheikh Mohammed, and then another story breaking this week about Latifa's sister, kidnapped in Cambridge, returned to Dubai and held against her will for more than two decades. How damaging, uh, Sam, do you think this is to the UAE? Well, I think that certainly is going to uh, give the UAE some negative uh, press coverage in the uh, American and probably the European media as well. But I don't think it will change the fundamental tenets of what you noted about how there's a sense of impunity that seems to surround the UAE and its actions. So uh, I think that that sense of impunity should be explained a little bit more deeply. I think it stems, uh, first of all, from the uh, fact that the UAE can uh, kind of create a degree or cloak of deniability around some of its worst abuses. For example, its actions in Libya and actions in Yemen are shielded through its alignments with local proxies and local militias, like the Libyan National Army of Khalifa Haftar, or the Southern Transitional Council and the Security Belt militias in, in southern Yemen. Also, the UAE seems to be playing more of a less visible role in Libya by being a financier to the Wagner Group, the, the Russian private military contractors that are there, while that group carries out uh, activities like the deployment of landmines, use of chemical weapons, uh, uh, and actions against civilians. So the UAE uh, has uh, been very clever at uh, hiding some of its worst military abuses. And on the human rights front, there was obviously, of course, the case of Matthew Hedges, who was detained back in 2018 in the United Kingdom, which gained uh, quite a bit of coverage in, in November of that year. But a month later, it was out of the news and uh, business as usual was occurring with the UAE. So I think that the same story will happen here with uh, Princess Latifah as well, uh, sadly, unfortunately. The, the other question is then, uh, is uh, how does the UAE also really manage to maintain this kind of a positive image in the West? I mean, the most obvious uh, explanation comes from uh, lobbying and person-to-person connections, whether it be Emirati donations to think tanks or the relationship between uh, the Emirati ambassador to the United States, Aisha Falo Taiba, and American officials. But I think there's also something that's uh, deeper than that that's probably worth exploring for the future. I mean, I think that the UAE has really sold to American, British, and European policymakers its narrative of uh, secularism as aversion to political Islam, which is ironic because the UAE actually cooperates with some of the most extreme Islamic militias in the region. I mean, the Madkali Salafis in Libya, or its alleged uh, provisions to uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen. But it's managed to maintain this image of being moderate, secular, and progressive, particularly with the, with the model of Dubai, whereas uh, Saudi Arabia is seen often as regressive, conservative, and supportive of the worst extremist groups in the, in the region. So that's a uh, 
one thing that they had done. And the second thing is Dubai, due to its cosmopolitanism, due to its open to, openness to tourism, openness to investments, has really projected a kind of uh, liberal and positive image to, uh, to many people, which belies the liberal character of Mohammed bin Rashid's rule, which we saw well, with the treatment of Princess Latifah. And finally, the UAE has countered uh, its, uh, its criticisms to a very effective use and synthesis of hard and soft power. In particular, it's donations of humanitarian aid across the world, which we've seen them really step up with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the supply of PPE equipment, and the openness of the UAE to, 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 uh, to outsiders visiting to get vaccinations, the vaccination tourism that we're seeing there. So the UAE uh, is, is actually still ranked as the number one soft power country in the Middle East, according to many indicators. So it's got a very effective means of kind of uh, controlling the media, accessing, public, uh, accessing politicians, promoting its narratives on the world stage, and countering these uh, negative stories with uh, positive stories about soft power that ensure that it doesn't really stay criticized in the headlines for very long. So I don't think that there'll be the kind of backlash over this that we saw MBS receive over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm, yeah. Now, now you mentioned uh, Yemen and Libya. These are projects right. of the Abu Dhabi Conference, uh, de facto UAE ruler, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. I wonder, uh, how are these and, and other foreign efforts working out, do you think? Well, I think that uh, the UAE over the past decade has obviously uh, transformed its image from a regional power with uh, a great deal of economic wealth and potential and uh, close relations with both West and East into perhaps the most influential uh, state in the Arab world in many respects. It, uh, and, and why I say that is even though it's not the most militarily powerful or demographically the largest, it really seems to play an outsized role in shaping the uh, ideational agenda of much larger countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, particularly with regards to his opposition to political Islam and his opposition to uh, liberal democracy. So I think that uh, in terms of his ideational leadership, the uh, military interventions in Libya and Yemen have done a lot to kind of promote and enhance this uh, Emirati status. But militarily and on the ground, it's really something of a mixed bag. In Libya, the UAE was uh, looking like it was being very successful from 2017 to 2019 through its reliance on Chinese drones, its reliance on the LNA as a proxy. Khalifa Haftar swept across most of the oil fields of eastern and southern Libya. It uh, maintained a foothold in the port of Benghazi. And the UAE was really able to rely on the Russian PMCs, Jordanian uh, armored vehicles, uh, some Egyptian support on the border. So it was a relatively low-cost, high-impact, high-success operation. But flash forward to the start of 2020, and we see the involvement of Turkey, the UAE's uh, gambit in Libya appears to be suffering a large number of setbacks. The Emirates have not really been able to deal with the loss of al Wattiyah base, the Turkish advance eastward. Khalifa Haftar is proving to be increasingly erratic and unpredictable, unwilling to participate in, in peace talks or even walking out of peace processes, like we saw in January of 2020 in Russia, but also due to his own uh, mercurial personality. The UAE doesn't seem to have a clear path towards a diplomatic leverage or, or the retention of reconstruction contrasts like Turkey seems to have. So I think that over the course of 2020, the UAE's uh, strategy in Libya has taken a major hit, and there are questions about their long-term power projection in that conflict and whether their model of proxy warfare is sustainable for long-term success. In Yemen, I think their results are a bit more successful. The UAE has managed to uh, avoid some of the... Uh, 
worst after effects of fighting the Houthis because it's really been focused on southern Yemen. It hasn't had Houthi missiles striking their cities like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, for example, in spite of repeated threats from the Houthi militias. And it's carved out a very successful sphere of influence in Aden. It's got close relationships with the Security Belt and Southern Transitional Council uh, affiliated militias. And it's also avoided much less scrutiny in the United States for its actions, particularly since Anwar Gargash announced his peace-first strategy in June of 2019 and announced his withdrawal. And we even saw Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi basically say, oh, Saudi Arabia is bad, we shouldn't be selling arms to them, but that is a shame that that's affecting the UAE and Jordan, who are our good partners and our good allies. So the UAE has been shielded from criticism within the Democratic Party for its actions in Yemen. And I think that even though the UAE is saying that it's left Yemen, and that it's now closed the base in Assab and Eritrea, it's not really gone. It will continue to pull the strings, almost as a puppet master, of local militias and local separatist allies over there. So I think the Yemen uh, campaign has been a lot more successful in terms of the projection of long-term leverage. The Libyan campaign was faster and more successful in the short term, but in the long run, with the rise of Turkey, it's looking a bit difficult right now. Now, you mentioned Anwar Gargash, who was for many years really the face of the UAE foreign policy efforts as Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, abruptly moved out of his post in early February. I mean, what should we read into that, Sam? I mean, I don't know whether there's uh, one uh, clear answer as to why this happened. I mean, there's multiple competing theories that are surfacing. I mean, one theory that I think is quite convincing is that the UAE wants to just change its generational uh, outlook on uh, communication of foreign policy. So this is maybe part of a broader uh, generational shift within the uh, Emirati royal family. Another argument is that the UAE wants a new messenger for its uh, foreign policy agenda to the outside world. And this is the message that I think is perhaps even more compelling. The uh, Anwar Gargash was very personally uh, associated with uh, the Emirati narratives about Libya. So the stability narrative, some of their narratives about secularism and political Islam, which uh, were successful uh, in the short term, particularly in, in some Western capitals, particularly Paris, I would say. But they, in the longer term, have exposed the UAE to criticism. He also was the public face of the Qatar blockade. So now that the UAE is, uh, has ended the Qatar blockade officially with the uh, signing on to the Alula Agreement, though I think that there's still a long way to go with Emirati and Qatari relations, and the UAE is trying to show the Biden administration that it's something of a more moderate force, perhaps through less, more cautious confrontation with Iran and Turkey, maybe even some constructive engagement with Iran, like we've seen in, uh, in the summer of 2019, through withdrawing from military theaters like Yemen and Libya, I think that the uh, Emirati foreign policy establishment just really wants uh, a new face at the helm, whereas Gargash, being uh, getting a senior uh, chairmanship post in the uh, Emirates Diplomatic Academy and an advisory position to Mohammed bin Zayed, will still remain an influential shaper. In fact, his influence might even grow, because as of now, he's been mainly a communicator and implementer of Mohammed bin Zayed's policy goals. Now he can leverage his, uh, his, his education, his experience, to really serve as a more of an advisor and a shaper of Emirati policy, while a younger, fresher face communicates that agenda. Hmm, interesting, yeah. Um, so perhaps not, not a fall guy at all. The Biden administration is putting maximum pressure on Mohammed bin Salman over Saudi Arabia's long list of human rights abuses. But as you said, the story is not pretty in the UAE either. Uh, Matthew Hedges, of course, but also... 
human rights activist, Emirati human rights activist like Akud Mansur, Nasser bin Ayath, and Mohammed Arokan, sentenced to long jail terms in brutal conditions, along with dozens of others. Do you think that MBZ will feel some of that heat that Washington's putting on Mohammed bin Salman over human rights issues? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, as of now, it appears as if the, uh, even though the Biden administration uh, says that it's committed to protecting human rights all over the world, including the Middle East, it seems as if the two Middle Eastern powers that have really suffered the brunt of the Biden administration's criticisms are Mohammed bin Salman's uh, in Saudi Arabia and uh, President Sisi in Egypt, who we just brought up earlier this week. So as of now, the UAE has really managed to skirt a lot of these criticisms once again. And I don't know whether there'll be much real pressure on, on the U.S. from European capitals, particularly if transatlantic cooperation gets closer. Certainly not from France, where Mohammed bin Zayed maintains a very close relationship with Emmanuel Macron, and even even closer relationship with his, uh, defen- his former defense and now foreign minister, Jean-Levis Le Drian. And probably not from Britain either, as long as they're selling uh, weapons to MBZ or from many other European countries. So I don't think that there'll be pressure from Europe on human rights So the absence of European pressure and the Biden administration's focus on Saudi Arabia and Egypt at the present time doesn't really look good for uh, uh, Emirati human rights activists, unfortunately. Mm. I wonder, too, uh, given the JCPOA 2.0, if uh, the Americans, uh, Biden, you know, wants to get the UAE on side, uh, that that may be a card that he'll hold back playing on the human rights card. But but what is the UAE position and what sort of influence do you think the Emiratis are likely to have as Biden moves forward on JCPOA 2.0? Well, I personally think that even more than uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel or, or Bahrain, the UAE's anger towards the first uh, JCPOA in 2015 was less about the uh, deal's terms and it was more about the fact that it really was not consulted uh, very effectively by the Obama administration. So it was that feeling that the UAE is a rising regional power, it's got close relationships with so many U.S. politicians. American security officials call the UAE the uh, most trusted counterterrorism partner. So it's got this kind of uh, privileged status within the U.S. Uh, foreign policy and security establishment. Yet on its most pressing national security question, and on, a, on the issue of lifting sanctions against the well, what it views as probably the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, the UAE was... Uh, ignored, the UAE was, uh, was not really uh, considered in the negotiations, and that really seethed and that really rankled Mohammed bin Zayed. So I think that the Biden administration might have learned his lesson this time around and will be uh, more willing to, uh, to, to consult with the UAE. Certainly there'll be voices within the Democratic Party, like Chris Coons, who'll be supporting that quite strongly. And also, the UAE well, might want to use dialogue and uh, uh, concessions on the Iran portfolio in order to uh, soften uh, criticisms from Biden on his conduct in Libya and Yemen, like particularly its uh, continued uh, behind-the-scenes kind of puppet master role there, as well as on human rights. So I think this is a win-win for both the Biden administration and the UAE if they can cooperate. Also, I think it's important to note that the Emirati position on Iran is somewhat more moderate than uh, the Saudi or the Israeli positions. I mean, the anti-Iran foreign policy is really sourced out of Abu Dhabi. It's really sourced out of Mohammed bin Zayed and his inner circle. Dubai Emirate, for instance, is a lot more moderate in its approach to Iran because of the large Iranian diaspora community, residual commercial links with Iran. And it's important to note that 
up until uh, quite recently, and even during the uh, early first year of the maximum pressure campaign that Trump announced, so 2018 and 2019, the UAE still ranked as one of Iran's largest trade partners. So there's a lot of trade and commerce that the Emiratis will be itching to see come back with Iran. And those kind of financial injuries don't necessarily exist really at all with the Saudis and the Israelis. So that's one point I wanted to bring up. And second, if there was a military confrontation with Iran, the UAE would suffer uh, greatly, and particularly its status as a, as a hub in, uh, in terms of investment and tourism in Dubai. I mean, we already saw the way the Emiratis refused to blame the Iranians for the uh, attack on the Gulf of Oman in Fujairah in May of 2019, even though the Americans and the Israelis did, and, and that attack was most likely orchestrated by Iran, but the Emiratis didn't, didn't blame them. So the Emiratis have shown caution, and then up until the Abraham Accords, there was really this kind of cold peace that was developing between Iran and the UAE, with even Zarif and Abdullah bin Zayed talking about their kind of shared vision for the future and talking about future cooperation. So I think that while the Israel normalization has created a hitch, the Emiratis could come back to that kind of more moderate posturing on the uh, Iran issue, and that would play very well with the Biden administration, and it might even play well domestically, as uh, MBZ tries to redirect the uh, attention towards Turkey and Erdogan as the biggest threat to regional stability, and not necessarily Iran. Yeah, now the, the Abraham Accords, uh, normalization with Israel, the UAE was the key player on the Arab side. How is that working for the Emiratis? Or do you think it could prove something of a poison chalice for them? Well, I think that the uh, Abraham Accords really didn't tell us anything that all that new. I mean, the uh, Emiratis and the Bahrainis, of course, have been working with Israel for quite a long time, right? The uh, uh, Bahrain, it dates back to 2005, if you uh, believe the, uh, some of the WikiLeaks cables that came out on that. Um, and the UAE, it, it was probably 2009, if not earlier. So that, 2009 was the year that Benjamin Netanyahu returned as prime minister. So the Abraham Accords really just formalized a, a long-standing covert partnership that included the uh, transfers of surveillance technology, the, uh, the informal movement of Israeli businessmen and, uh, and people to the UAE, and a lot of covert security dialogue on dealing with the Iran threat. So I think that the uh, that there really won't be that much of a change in the Emirati uh, regional position due to it. And I see the UAE winning from this agreement in several different ways. First of all, uh, Israeli investments in, uh, in Dubai will be able to become a lot more uh, overt and public which will be good for the uh, city as it recovers from the double whammy of the COVID-19 pandemic and the uh, loss of, uh, of tourism revenues, as well as the uh, rising debt that the UAE is experiencing and real estate bubbles and some other problems. So economically, it's going to be quite good. Secondly, it will allow for a more strategic dialogue with Israel on a variety of formats, not just on Iran, but also on Eastern Mediterranean security, where the Israelis and the Emiratis have both really uh, strengthened their relations with Greece against Turkey. So the containment of Turkey could also be assisted by this kind of dialogue with Israel. And moreover, the uh, creation of some kind of a de facto coalition of sorts with Israel, Bahrain, and the UAE having formal relations with, with each other, and Saudi Arabia having closer informal ties. I think those informal ties will grow now that the UAE has normalized with Israel. Will in general create a degree of Israel-Gulf cohesion that even if the Biden administration in the U.S. isn't uh, as supportive of their objectives as Trump administration's was, they could be more self-reliant in dealing with security threats. So I think that that's a, a win for the Emiratis as well. The obvious flip side will be the contradiction between 
the Emirati normalization with Israel, and uh, the UAE's championship of this kind of Arab nationalism. It's criticized, the, for example, the government of national accord in Libya for accepting Turkish assistance. It's been outspoken about Iranian interference in the Middle East, and it's talked about how Arab states should only accept Arab help, and they should be kind of the Arab world for Arabs, so to speak, to justify its conduct in Syria and Libya. And now that it's normalized with Israel, that might be seen as hypocritical in some of the Arab world. Its soft power might erode to some degree, and its ability to influence uh, outcomes on the Palestinian question would also erode too, though the Emiratis are still talking about a two-state solution, and even in Gargash's very last public speech, was hinting at a return to a more uh, prominent negotiating position on Palestine. So we have to see how, how long-term those negative impacts will be. Yeah, now you've you've mentioned uh, Turkey uh, a couple of times, so I, I must ask you, because many commentators speak about this new great game, the one between Turkey and the UAE, Erdogan versus MBZ. Do you think that's overplaying it a bit, or, or do you think that, that it is the new great game? Well, I think that there's a, certainly a growing rivalry between Turkey and the UAE that's uh, really cemented over the past... Uh, over the past decade, because before that, I mean, the relationship was relatively, uh, it had its ups and downs, but it was relatively close overall. And first of all, there's an ideological rivalry that really came out of the Arab Spring, with Turkey uh, supporting the uh, overthrow of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, and uh, even more so, the uh, overthrow of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. The UAE was part of this uh, coalition uh, of the Syrian opposition until 2018, when it recognized uh, Assad as the legitimate leader of Syria. But it always was much more cautious than Turkey about arming uh, indiscriminately Syrian rebel groups, and it certainly did not like the overthrow of Mubarak. So this kind of Turkey as a supporter along with Qatar of revolution, and the UAE as this kind of champion of counter-revolution, created an ideological rivalry for influence that has persisted to the present day and still remains very intense, particularly in the Libyan theater. Secondly, both countries have maintained a, a much more expansive geostrategic rivalry now that uh, occurs in many different zones. I mean, the uh, UAE and uh, Turkey are both uh, vying for influence in the Eastern Mediterranean, with the Emiratis aligning with the Greeks and the Cypriots, and uh, Eastern Libya against Turkey. They're both competing in the Horn of Africa, with the UAE maintaining close relations with Sudan's uh, military, and Turkey trying to get an in with the civilian government, and also in Somalia, where the UAE is closer to the breakaway region of Somaliland, and the Turks are investing very heavily in Mogadishu and the Somali government. So there's a rivalry in the Horn of Africa and the Eastern Med. The resolution of the Gulf crisis, uh, however imperfect that may have been, might uh, ease one theater of, uh, of animosity, but the Emiratis certainly do not like that the Turks are deploying military forces in a base in Qatar. Gargash has even described that as a threat to regional stability just a few months ago. So. That will remain uh, a bit of a sore point too going forward, particularly if Qatar continues to finance some of Turkish activities that the Emiratis find very disdainful. And we should also look out for the future. If this great game is to really escalate into something more of a hotter war, Emirati support for the Kurdish militias in northern Syria, which they've been rumored to have been doing in 2017 and 2018, because that would really rankle Turkey as kind of a reciprocal thing. So if Turkey's carving out a sphere in the Gulf in Qatar and the Emiratis go up to northern Syria... I can see Erdogan being very mad about that and that kind of making this rivalry something a lot more tangible and visceral to the domestic population than it already is. Finally, Sam, uh, Abu Dhabi, MBZ, was instrumental in launching the Gulf feud with Qatar 
in 2017. I mean, things, as you say, have been patched up with the Qataris. But the Qataris themselves haven't had to bend very much at all. When you look at the original list of demands, the 13 demands that was presented to them back in uh, in 2017, do you think that's been a setback for, for MBZ? Do you think that's a loss of prestige in some ways? Well, I think that the uh, this was an outcome also that was, uh, to some degree, inevitable. It was pretty clear by the summer of 2017 that the most expansive goals of the uh, uh, so-called anti-terror quartet's uh, objectives against Qatar, which were to really uh, undermine Qatari foreign policy independence and Qatar's ability to act as a regional power that promotes a conflicting ideational vision that's based on the support of grassroots uh, political Islam and civil society movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and closer engagement with Iran and Turkey, those objectives, those expansive objectives of undermining Qatari sovereignty and independence were clearly dashed and clearly unachievable. So in some ways, what we saw in January was just an admission of, of reality, that Qatar is here to stay as an important regional player, and it's not a player that we may agree on with everything, but it's a country that we have to kind of uh, work around our disagreements for the sake of unity of the Gulf. So MBZ will likely be able to, uh, and Gargash, try to spin the uh, the demands that they had laid out, the 13 demands as being maximalist, and being uh, ultimate goals though, which they could ultimately water down and negotiate even though at the time they definitely seemed like real, real demands and not necessarily something that were kind of played up or exaggerated. So, but regardless of the Emirati spin, as you say, I think that the very fact that Qatar did not have to make appreciable foreign policy concessions beyond uh, is dropping some of his lawsuits in the WTO, uh, which, were, uh, well, which were not really that significant or that really uh, visible to the, to the public eye, that that would have been a blow to Mohammed bin Zayed's uh, prestige going forward and it might uh, discourage him from ca- carrying out uh, tactics that are so reckless, like the um, Qatar blockade, and working more in the shadows, like it's doing in the post-withdrawal environment in Yemen, or increasingly so in Libya. And the question is whether Mohammed bin Zayed can influence Mohammed bin Salman uh, to pursue those similar kinds of strategies and avoid the war in Yemen, the Qatar blockade, the uh, kidnapping of the Lebanese uh, prime minister, actions like that. I mean, that's hard to tell. There's also the question as to whether Mohammed bin Salman's uh, leadership in uh, kind of resetting relationships with Qatar, and uh, even though MBZ was not very happy with this, and uh, trying to appease the Biden administration through this uh, Qatar normalization has meant that he is more autonomous from MBZ, and he's more willing to kind of uh, defy MBZ's preferences. That, that dynamic is unclear too. But I think that it's a win reputationally for the UAE in the United States, but it's a bit of a loss of face to its regional allies domestically, and it could possibly lead to a resetting or a change in the balance of power, at least in terms of the personal balance of power between MBZ and MBS. Mm. And, and MBS himself is in somewhat uh, difficult place right now, so it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out as well over the next weeks and months. Uh, Sam, listen, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was great to be on. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast, and my guest today was Samuel Ramani, a non-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum and a doctoral candidate in international relations at the University of Oxford. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. 
and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. Thank you.